guy. This you is Tracy Good morning, Wednesday breakfast on 3CR. You're listening to Di, Patrick and Nick. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so Wednesday the 29th of March. The year's creeping along. We're in autumn now. Does this mean, is is it the daylight savings thing happening this weekend? Is that happening? I, hope so. I think it is, yeah. I think it is. We'll, we'll find out. Stick yeah. with us on the show and we yeah. will find out whether you have to change your clocks this weekend. <laughs> I think we do get an extra hour of sleep. Oh, that would be excellent. Yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, sleep is magic. So what do we have on the program today, guys? Um, well, we've got quite a lot, actually. So we've got an interview with David Giles, who's um, an academic and an author. And uh, then we've got an interview with some people on a bike race or yeah, doing a bike, a bike race. race from the Indian Pacific Wheel Race um, that's running across the country from west to east, ending in the Opera House, starting in Fremantle. And we'll just check in with the team who's been running with them in a car um, and hear a little bit about it. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Cool. Uh, it is Daylight Savings this weekend, ending at 2am on this Sunday, so... There you go. So we wind our clocks. Uh, fall back. Back. Yeah, because back. we fall back. It's yes. American autumn. Back in time. Oh, yeah. Yes. And then spring forward. Okay. It's easier with the spring part because we, you know, use that term. That is handy. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. Well, we're just going to go to some CSAs and then we'll um, chat through what's happening this week. There are, there are some things coming up. Uh, this Friday is the first International Drug Checking Celebration Day uh, in across the world. Uh, but oh. there is an event in Victoria and it will be starting, um, I believe, 4.30 at Fed Square uh, is where the celebrations are going to start. And the idea of the day is for it to be a bit of a uh, celebration day rather than a protest style day. Um, people are invited to come down to Fed Square at 4.30 uh, and hear about um, hear about what pill testing is and meet the community and uh, I think walk up to Parliament is the is the plan, but um, in a in a jovial manner. Just jovially yeah. <laughs> striding along up to Parliament. So that's and this Friday, yeah? This Friday, and you can find more information about it on Facebook. You can see DanceWise or Harm Reduction Victoria or SSDP Australia also have it on their page. And tomorrow there's news from the Green Left. Um, there's an event on at... Melbourne Multicultural Hub, Level 1 at the Purple Room, hosted by Resistance Books and the Green Left Weekly. Co-author Ellen Broughton and others will launch this important new release, um, Resistance Books and Publications, subtitled Small Farmers, Food Security and Big Business. The book addresses the crisis of modern agriculture and the, and the particular form it takes in Australia. If this interests you, I suggest get down and have a listen. Yeah, sounds good. And um, this Friday, 31st of March, is Trans Day of Visibility. And uh, it's a really, really positive um, day of celebration for uh, trans people across the world. Um, but there's an element of sort of sadness um, because there's been some recent reports that show that the eighth transgender woman of colour has been murdered uh, this year in the States. So that's eight and it's only March. So that's pretty shocking stuff. And if we wind back to 2016, 
270 trans people were killed globally, um, fueled by transphobic um, prejudice. So it's pretty shocking stuff. Um, and I think since 2008, 2,000 trans people have been mm. killed. So that's quite a lot. That's um, 200 a year, roughly. There is also um, a few events happening on that day, uh, celebrating the trans community and uh, taking, you know, uh, taking that power back for the yeah, fun and things. Uh, one of them is put on by Y Gender, and it is Unpacking Visibility Trans Day of Visibility panel uh, happening at Y Gender 100 Drummond Street in Carlton uh, from 6pm on Friday. Uh, the topic is, what is visibility? Is visibility enough? What does it mean to struggle with hyper-visibility and erasure? And uh, they're inviting you to come join them and uh, talk about Trans Day of Visibility. There's a number of panellists uh, who will be uh, speaking, all of them uh, trans young people, um, but everyone of any age and any identity is welcome to attend. Uh, the building is wheelchair accessible, which is good to know as well. So 6pm at Y Gender 100 Drummond Street in Carlton for Unpacking Visibility, Trans Day of Visibility panel. A lot to celebrate there. And I think there's a disco coming up. I think there's a daggy disco coming up out in Footscray. On... <laughs> Not a cool one. No, no. All dags are welcome. Crack coconut disco balls. <laughs> Looks good. Is the PR. Um, and it's from 9pm on Friday the 14th of April. Um, it's for a good cause. So get your dag on. It's to make Hot Shots toilets accessible. Um, and that's at Hot Shots Footscray. So get on down. Fantastic. Uh, there's also, this Sunday is the uh, 2017 Melbourne Didgeridoo and Cultural Festival um, happening down at uh, Wombat Bend Park, Finns Reserve, Duncan Street in Templestowe Lower. Um, so just down on the Yarra there, which will be quite nice. The website is digfestival.com.au. It's a family day of live music, uh, obviously. Indigenous culture, dance, art, food, workshops and kids' activities. Um, uh, come and celebrate the world's oldest living Indigenous culture. They're saying 75,000 years young. Um, geez, there's a few different numbers going about now. I know 40,000 was what we were taught in school. Yeah. But uh, it seems that it's longer than that because there are some findings um, now of, uh, of uh, evidence of uh, uh, habitation on the Australian continent far before that. Um, so, yeah, it could be longer. Yeah, wow. Damn, so, this Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Go celebrate. It, yeah. I think that'd be great. Mm. Sounds good. And um, one more event that I thought I'd just share with everyone. So um, obviously Trump's in power and no one's uh, impeached him yet. But um, everyone's looking at, you know, politics after Trump and building resistance now. So there's an event um, happening at the Socialist Alliance and Resistance Young Socialist Alliance um, gathering, for this gathering, sorry. And that's happening at 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick at Siteworks on Saturday the 8th of April from 10 to 5pm. Um, it's basically a, a discussion around Trump and the new war on the poor, fighting for real climate action and what is to be done building a people's movement. And that's going to be introduced by Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. Yeah, so get along people, that sounds like a really worthwhile cause. Yeah, this is an interview with David Giles is conversation we had on the phone. Um, he's an anthropological lecturer at Deakin University. Um, he's a writer. Um, and we had a conversation because he helped co-host a public forum that happened on the 17th of March um, that was around the Melbourne Sleeping Rough Band. Um, please enjoy the interview. 
This is a conversation with Dr. David Giles, who is a big advocate for Food Not Bombs, a worldwide organisation who shares food with hungry people. He is a lecturer in anthropology at the Deakin University and one of the organisers behind the public forum, Melbourne, Rough Sleeping Band, that happened on the 17th of March. This conversation was recorded on Tuesday the 21st of March. We begin the conversation by asking David what he's been working on. Uh, well, a book at the moment. I, um, uh, I'm not teaching this year, so I have just a... Um, well, sorry, well, I'm not teaching this trimester, so I've just got a, um, a book called uh, Mass Conspiracy to Feed People, World Class Waste and the Struggle for the Global City uh, that I'm uh, trying to get finished by July so that I can publish it by uh, the beginning of 2018. And so this would have definitely sparked your reason for organising the public forum, Melbourne Sleeping Rough. That that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, the, all of these issues are connected. Uh, and that's, you know, one, one of the main things I've tried to bring out in my work is the connection between, you know, globalisation and you know, free market globalisation and the you know, the, the liberation of money to just run wherever it wants in the world, where it, wherever it can find a profit. I've been trying to demonstrate the relationship between that and um, and then, you know, citizenship and exclusion. Like who, when, you know, in this sort of neoliberal context where uh, what's good for business is good for everyone and when money uh, is free to just flow around the world in search of profit, who gets left out, who gets... Uh, who who gets the benefits and and who was forgotten, you know. So so this this uh, the rough sleeping ban in Melbourne and the the explosion of rough sleeping in the CBD in the last couple of years is all exactly what I'm writing about. So you're really seeing a, a similar trend around the world, and it's definitely very big in Melbourne at the moment. Yep, absolutely. You know, in, in in the broadest terms, what I'm writing about is I call it cultural economy. I'm writing about the way in which, you know, the economy is always based on culture. You know, economists and politicians talk about the economy as if it's this kind of separate, almost magical beast that we have to tame and, and sometimes pander to. But economy is always a set of human relationships and, and it's a set of human values. So I'm always writing about how uh, how the culture of a city shapes the global economy and vice versa, you know, and, and that shapes immediately, that shapes how we relate to things, how we relate to people, uh, and it means that some things get valued uh, and other things get thrown away. Some people get valued and some people get abandoned. All of that is is what makes the economy possible. And where, yep. where do you see Melbourne heading? Um, I think we're, we're at the risk of uh, following... Uh, the United States in some important ways uh, and Australian cities have been sort of insulated uh, against some of the worst uh, the worst consequences of globalization up until now uh, you know but we've in, in many ways our governments have looked to an American playbook uh, and that's you know federal governments and local governments so uh, you know, we could end up looking very, very much like, say, San Francisco, which is incredibly successful and incredibly wealthy uh, for the top half of the income spectrum, uh, and then a very difficult, very expensive place to live for people on the bottom end. I mean, I'm, 
you know, Melbourne bills itself as the most livable city, but uh, as one of our panellists last week pointed out, most livable is defined by The Economist magazine. Seems very much like a sales pitch, Melbourne's most livable city. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. And I think, I think Brisbane's, you know, world city is the same thing. And that, yeah, I suppose could tie into why the homeless ban might be coming into effect and why they're trying to be so authoritarian upon Yeah, that. absolutely. I mean, I suppose I've been, I've, I've been a, bit, um, a bit abstract about that, but it's, it, you know, when I, when I talk about who's valued and who's not, in a, in a really concrete way, it's about trying to attract certain kinds of people and trying to push out other kinds of people. It's about saying, you know, you know uh, the Victorian police chief, Graham Ashton, said this explicitly. He came out and said, well, it doesn't look very good for Melbourne when the, the tourists come for the tennis and they see this sort of thing pointing to Flinders Street and pointing to the camp at Flinders Street. Uh, you know, and it, in a way, I'm a bit surprised that a public official would say such, uh, such awful things about his fellow Melbournians or his fellow Victorians. Uh, but he made it explicit. He it was explicitly saying that what we care about is people who come to Melbourne for the tennis, not these people sleeping out on the street. A real showcasing. I was interested mm-hmm. to see what Richard Foster said. Did he mention when sort of this business all the time push may have started to happen or take shape or mm. the dominant feature within Melbourne? Because he was in there and holding the portfolio. Did he shed any yeah. insight on that? No, no, he didn't give any... Uh, he didn't give any sense of the history of it. Um, you know, I, I think we can we can definitely put it into the global context where, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, what national economies were, were doing was focusing on building a strong middle class uh, and focusing on domestic manufacturing. Uh, and it's been in the last 30 or 40 years that, you know, we've had deindustrialization of various sorts, uh, you know, to a greater extent in other places, but still in Australia. So we've had the deindustrialization, and cities like Melbourne have had to figure out what they're going to do instead if they're not manufacturing centres, if we don't have a robust middle class that does the manufacturing, what will we do instead? Uh, and so that's, that's a decision that cities around the world have had to make in the last, let's say, 30 or 40 years. You know, and so you can look at a city like Detroit... Uh, which used to be a thriving manufacturing centre with a strong middle class. All those jobs went elsewhere. Uh, and now it looks, um, you know, or at least certain parts of it look like an absolute ghost town. So other cities look at that and think, oh, I've got to try something else. And so then you get your San Francisco's and your Seattle's that are really investing in, you know, something like software or a place like New York City, which really invests in banking you know, and they invest in those sorts of industries instead. Uh, and then they, uh, corresponding to that, they invest in becoming these kind of world-class uh, places. So that that's a long-term thing. I don't know that, um, for Melbourne, I don't know if you can pin it down to a, a starting time. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you can certainly see some of the shifts uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, the Kennett government, um, at the state level, the Kennett government, government certainly shifted a push in that, in that kind of neoliberal direction in general. Uh, and then the Lord Mayor is, uh, 
going on nearly a decade in office in Melbourne, um, and he's clearly got this kind of, uh, you know, having been the former um, former former state Liberal leader, he's clearly got those sorts of priorities in mind. David Giles went on to speak more about the public forum Melbourne Sleeping Rough Band that happened on the 17th of March 2017. The event Facebook page is still up. There are videos posted of the night's proceedings, comments. You can visit at your own leisure. David now goes on to contextualise the proposed ban on Sleeping Rough in Melbourne CBD, putting it into a bigger picture. You know, it's not just going to be this law. These are, you know, these are expressions of fundamental conflicts. You know, these these kinds of laws are expressions of fundamental economic conflicts, uh, and they all they pop up like clockwork whenever there's a conflict over uh, common space or over shared public space. You know, whenever there's a conflict between uh, wealth and poverty um, about how to use public space. So we're going to keep having these, and and so even if this uh, even if this law doesn't get overturned. Uh, the, the movement that we build will keep attention on these issues. So, uh, so maybe Melbourne thinks about the next uh, the next conflict slightly differently. Uh, maybe the Herald Sun is less uh, sensationalist about how they cover it. Uh, who knows? But e- either way, this is also going to be a test case for the Australian city in the 21st century in general. You know, Brisbane. If if Melbourne passes this, there's a good chance Brisbane would try to do the same thing. Uh, you know, Sydney, Perth, all all of the, all of the places where we're going to see these structural conflicts repeated again and again uh, in the 21st century are places where we're going to have this conversation again and again. So we have to keep the, keep the attention on it. Uh, hey, some news from the US. Do you want to hear some more horror news from the US? Everybody sure. likes the horror stories. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? U.S. President Donald uh, Trump has, um, over the past 24 hours, signed an executive order rolling back Obama-era climate change policies. He was at the, uh, uh, what's the place, the Environmental Protection Authority, Mm. I think they're called over in the U.S., um, and rolled those back. Um, Do you want to hear a little bit from Mr. Trump as well? Sure. Taking today will eliminate federal overreach, restore economic freedom, and allow our companies and our workers to thrive, compete, and succeed on a level playing field for the first time in a long time, fellas. It's been a long time. Uh, And I stop him there. Uh, Basically, the sorts of uh, things he's been rolling back will mean that uh, coal uh, mining and coal uh, infrastructure is still going to continue on for many years to come, Uh where I think uh, what what had happened is they were talking about rolling these things back. So basically, it's a uh, jobs before the earth that supports the fact that you can be alive to even have a job in the first place uh, sort of policy. Uh, Very typical of Mr. Trump. It seems. But it's, it, isn't it now um, becoming apparent that these um, forms of you know business are not actually sustainable and they're not actually going to bring in that much money anyway? I mean, sure. That's why I mean, all the big playing, companies are divesting. Yeah, from it's not and... economically viable. Yep. So, I mean, if he's such a smart businessman, supposedly, as he sells himself, 
with that scary music. What was that music? <laughs> that was uh, Huffington Post's o- oh, overlay, sorry. Yeah, oh, Huffington okay. Post, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, so that wasn't his own dramatisation. No. <laughs> oh, that was their ironic dramatisation, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he is such a um, great businessman as he claims to be, uh, you'd think he would be able to look at something that would actually make money which would be making jobs for people, but in a sustainable, viable way. I believe one of his um, press secretaries also referred to renewable energy in a roundabout kind of way mm. as uh, pixie dust and uh, hope. Pixie dust and hope was uh, what I think renewable energy was referred to uh, as or alluded to. Isn't Elon Musk one of his advisors, one of his boards on advisors? Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think so. Is I remember it? that coming around and oh. I'm pretty sure it wasn't part of fake news. <laughs> um, when Trump went around meeting Elon Musk, and I think he even may have met um, Kanye, or it might have been PR stunts. Mm. He did meet um, Kanye. But it's but very strange that he's doing coal nonetheless. Oh, yep. Yeah, Elon Musk will stay on as a White House advisory, uh, on a White House advisory council, despite being outraged over it. So he he might be there despite not liking Trump. The Elon Musk know. tick of approval. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Maybe he's being a mole in there, yeah. just getting in, you can trying to turn you things around hope. from within. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got an interesting interview coming up, don't we? We do. We have Jean Kehoe, um, part of the media crew from the Indian Pacific Wheel Race that's running across the continent of Australia. Mm. Um, Hi, guys. Hey, Jean. How are we going? On? Very good, thank you. So, the Indian Pacific you? Wheel Race. Oh, we're very well, thank you. The Indian Pacific Wheel Race. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? We understand it's a solo, single-stage, unsupported road cycling race. How how long is it? Yep, it's uh, the length is uh, five thousand four hundred and seventy uh, five thousand four hundred and seventy-four kilometres, and it's from uh, Fremantle to Sydney to the Sydney Opera House. Wow! So it's um, yeah, a solo, unsupported, one-stage race um, where riders will carry everything as they go. Um, and have to refuel, um, take care of all repairs themselves. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a very tough race. There must be some seriously interesting cats um, riding along this track. Um, when did the yeah. race? When did the race come? Is this the first one that's running across the continent? Yep, yeah, this is the first race um, that's been run in Australia. Um, however, in around eighty years ago, there was a guy called. Hubert Opperman, who um, he was supported, but he rode from Fremantle to Sydney. So my friend who created the race, Jesse Carlson, um, he sort of wanted to bring the Overlander spirit back to life. Um, so he thought it'd be a, an amazing idea to, to get a race like this up and running again. And we've sort of, we've had a lot of good traction with it. We've had the mayor of Adelaide uh, come out and greet the lead rider. Um, and it, I think the public have, you know, received this race quite well. It seems so, that way, and lots of people can connect with it. Is the spirit um, of the Overlander really coming through with some of the riders? We think so. It's a, it's. I guess it's sort of one big adventure for uh, for everyone riding it because there's a little bit of the unknown with um, how these sort of things play out. For instance, you can you have to do a lot of, a lot of planning sort of goes into a ride like this because. Um, for, if you're riding across the Nullarbor, shops might be open till 6pm and if you miss the time mm. or you didn't make that place on time, then you, you don't have the option to refuel or to, um, to get fresh water. So it's a, 
it's quite an interesting, um, <clears throat> excuse me, style of racing. Has anyone been stuck in that situation where they don't have access to water or um, they've had to fend for themselves somehow? Yes, uh, I think so. It's a the the only real option in that in that case would be to um, you all, you could either push on or you have to wait till the morning till the shop opens. So um, there's been a few riders back in the field who have, uh, I guess, done this race at a little more leisurely pace than the front runners. Um, but the front runners would have planned this race very well and they know all the resupply spots and um, I don't think they'd be making that same same mistake. When did it start? Some of the less experienced riders. When did it start? Yeah. Uh, it started on the 18th of March. Okay. And they're yeah. still going now? Yeah, they're still riding. The lead riders are currently uh, up to, uh, on falls, on the back of falls. So they'll be coming into uh, Mount Beauty sometime today. And I've seen some of the footage where people are watching um, dots right across the continent, right across the nation. Um, have many people been watching and how many dots are there? So they started, yeah, we've had a lot of dot watchers from around the world because a lot of the riders in the race are actually um, international riders. So we've got two of the best, um, two of the best racers currently, um, Christoph Allegay and Mike Hall, both racing. And I think they're, at the moment, they're neck and neck. There's about 60 kilometres between them. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have been hooked up to, the, to their screens and a lot of the comments and feedback we've had um, on social is that they're all, you know, getting a lot less work done than they should be because they're <laughs> watching the dots. <laughs> so it's like a very interactive race. How many Ks until the finish? Uh, till the finish, it's going to be, I think there's around 1,500, but there's some of the riders are still in Adelaide, so there's a long way for some. And for, you know, for the front runners, it's a little less. And how would um, people see or notice uh, Indian Pacific wheel race rider riding through their town or city? Is there anything? Well, yeah, you, you can follow the tracker because then you'll be able to see exactly where the riders are and then maybe time your trip out to visit whoever it might be coming through. Um, but usually just they've, they've all got big packs on their, on their bikes and... Uh, they look quite tired because they've been riding for quite <laughs> <laughs> I'd be pretty tired. How many are there again? There were 70 to start with, but uh, currently in the field, I think it might be down to 30 or 40 or so. There's been quite a few people um, sort of pull out of the race. 50% attrition rate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a game yeah. effort to do. So yeah. I've, ju I've just uh, headed over to IndianPacificWheelRace.com, which is where uh, you find the tracker that we're talking about. And yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of people that crossed out um, before even crossing um, a little bit of WA, which I suppose makes sense. You know, you get into it and go, actually, you know yeah. what? <laughs> Australia's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, and this race was sort of divided up on purpose by Jesse Carlson into, I guess, sort of four sections. Like you've got the the desert with the Nullarbor Plain, you've got the rolling hills of um, and the famous wine districts of South Australia, the iconic uh, Great Ocean Road, and then like where we are currently, the Australian Alps. So it was sort of the course, Jesse put a lot of effort into it, and uh, I think every part of the course was in there for a reason. So 
Uh, so, Jean, there's no prize money and there's nothing ex at stake except for honour. Um, but yep. there's something more to this race that I think um, we've been sort of working towards in this conversation, which is that you yep. know there's a building of awareness around cyclists on the road, especially yep. with regard to trucks and um, yep. you know, safety on the roads. Do you want to speak to for that? Sure. Yeah. Um, for us, I guess, safety for riders um, is paramount. Um, everyone... The, the only thing with this race is it is unsupported and everyone everyone knows what they need to bring for a ride like this. Um, but I guess in terms of Australian road safety and, and cyclists, it's a, it's a really... Um, it's a great lesson that, uh, you know, cyclists and car, cars, trucks, whoever it may be, we can all work together and we can all share the roads um, because this has been... I guess it's been quite successful so far in the fact that there hasn't really been any real serious injuries. Um, and, you know, we'd like to thank all the drivers out there that have really looked after the riders on the road. I heard so, some yeah, of the... appreciate it. I heard some of the road truckers um, have been getting on the airwaves and letting others know that there's some cyclists riding along and to watch out for them. Yeah, which has been great. And we've had a, a couple of truck drivers come up to us and sort of talk about how, how great the race is and that they've, you know... They've been very careful when they're when they're riding out on the Nullarbor, and um, lots of the lots of the riders have got quite bright lights and reflective um, jackets and so forth. So it's, uh, we hope that they're quite easily seen. Well, beautiful. Uh, it sounds like they are. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us, Jean. And um, no worries. And we'll put links up for listeners to find the dots and follow the race. Yep. Perfect. I, I... And we also we also have a, a Facebook page with live content updates. Um, and we've also got an Instagram account as well, so you're more than welcome to follow us on that. It's just Indian Pacific Wheel Race. Beautiful. Thank you, Jean. Cool. Thanks, Jean. I have spotted... No worries, guys. Uh, thank oh. you. I have spotted um, uh, the next person who will be cycling through uh, the Melbourne CBD uh, is Stefan Streik. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. From uh, like Finland. Um, I haven't got the whole profile here, but uh, right now Stefan is still out near Torquay. Um, the other closest rider on the other side of the city is out past the uh, Dandenong Ranges now, out in sort of the Yarra Valley way. And it looks like Stefan might be through, depending on how uh, how quick uh, Stefan is riding. Um, maybe in three or four hours, and we'll be riding uh, along Footscray Road and um, all the way down. They've got the whole whole route here, uh, down Latrobe Street and then uh, down uh, Swanston Street. So... Go yeah. give Stefan a high five. <laughs> IndianPacificWheelRace.com. You can track it there. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it's 20 past eight. We're just going to go to some alternative news, but first we'll do a couple of community service announcements. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. 3CR presents an afternoon of great music at the Northcote Social Club on Sunday 30th of April. Ekranoplans, a bunch of hard rockin' psychedelic Soviet sympathisers. Winter Sun, who swing from dirty ass blues to bittersweet ballads. Plus BJ Morizonkel, who's a weirdo composer and one-man band who combines cartoon music and depressed cowboy pop songs. 
The Northcote Social Club, High Street Northcote on Sunday 30th of April. Doors open at 1.30. Pre-sale discounted tickets at northcotesocialclub.com. Show your love for 3CR and support the musicians who support 3CR. Are you agitated? Are you agitated? Are you agitated? Yeah! Great. So that was pretty interesting, chatting to some people cycling around Australia. Could be a pretty nice thing to do next year. I reckon get training now. <laughs> I'll be buying my cyborg leg- legs before... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cyborg legs. Uh, so, yes, that was um, an interview with Gene Kehoe, and he's um, one of the riders um, in the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, which is a solo single stage, unsupported, 5,500 kilometre road cycling race from ocean to ocean across Australia. Sorry, he's not one of the riders. He's one of the media crew covering oh. this race. And you can follow yeah. their Facebook page, Indian Pacific by, Wheel Race. You can tell yeah, by, by how comfortable he sounded. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't sound very tired. I was quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they've been doing a good job covering this race and um, you can find some little quirky facts on all their socials and media streams. But he does do spin class spin class occasionally, I'm sure. <laughs> I think he does. He's a big advocate for the spin class. So um, I think we should get into some alternative news. Now, we did have an interview just before with David Giles, the academic um, and activist who is writing a book about... Um, uh, homelessness and um, how we can spread awareness of... Uh, do you want to speak to that, Patrick? Sorry, you're yeah, better, better um, to speak about that. David's been involved with Food Not Bombs and really likes spreading the word and understanding rules and regulations around how governments interact with public spaces. Um, he documents things as a global in a global context. So some governments have banned the giving of food to people on the streets. Mm. Food Not Bombs is very much against that and they give food to hungry people. Um, and David helped put on the public forum that was around Melbourne's Sleeping Rough ban. Um, and uh, I hear you have an article from The Conversation that's about the housing in uh, Melbourne and maybe why some people are experiencing homelessness. Exactly. I mean, this conflict between wealth and poverty of a public space um, is a massive issue, especially here in Melbourne where homelessness is pretty prevalent. And uh, it's always an issue um, that we're sort of constantly talking about here on 3CR, especially to do with the Bendigo Street housing um, crisis as well. So leading into that, I mean, there is this issue of... um, the financialization of housing, uh, which has just been um, reported by the United Nations very recently, uh, that there should be a right to adequate housing and the financialization of housing is an issue of global importance. So basically it's sort of defining financialization of housing as structural changes in housing and financial markets and global investment whereby housing is treated as a commodity, a means of accumulating wealth and often a security for financial instruments that are traded and sold on global markets. So it's no longer, you know, something where we treat a house as a home and everyone is able to have reasonable access to it, provided they, you know, have the means to a reasonable degree and, you know, they're a member of the society that's within the bell curve of able to, you know, access that. It's actually becoming almost like an elitist commodity where only, you know, the top 50% of um, housing um, is available to the wealthy. Um, So there's some interesting statistics here. It says over 50% of owners of housing owners in Australia are in the top wealth quintile and over three quarters are in the top two quintiles. So there's a massive um, 
imbalance in the way that housing is uh, spread across society and how affordable it is. You know, it used to be something that any mum and dad could really access um, to a reasonable degree. And now it's becoming something that's really, um, you know, something that's basically financed by the government. Um, Property investors tend to have higher incomes with 70% earning in the top 40% of all incomes. Um, You know, what do you guys think? I mean, it's pretty tough to actually access housing these days. Um, they're saying now that it's not just that you can buy a house, but it's it's more an issue of risk. It's a very risky investment um, and everyone's renting. Mm. Yeah. Well, my friend bought a house the other day. <laughs> she she did it. She's under 30. She's younger than me. And she went and bought out a, a bought an apartment. And she actually Good lucked out a little bit because yeah. it was at an auction um, in, in, uh, in Brunswick, sunny Brunswick. <laughs> Um, That's pretty fancy pants. I know. And she got a really good price on it because there was another couple that were going to bid Mm. and um, the wife in the couple said... Oh, if she's if she's a first home buyer because they were buying an investment property, she said, "Let's not bid," which was very good of her. So let's let's hope for more like uh, uh, um, ethical um, home buyers out there who decide not to invest in their third or twenty seventh property uh, and instead leave it for um, the younger ones, thus hopefully uh, leaving you know the market a little bit less heated. Well, congratulations to them because there's a huge <laughs> issue. I mean, they're talking about um, you know capital gains exemptions, the exclusion of the primary home from pension calculations, negative gearing, tenancy policies that favour property owners and uh, less restrictive mortgage financing for um, people who are already investors and have um, high incomes. So these are all the factors and obstacles that stand in the way of people being able to actually, you know, buy a home and it seems to be, you know, put forward by the government whereas we've got, you know, people in the community like you just mentioned, Nick, who are obviously recognising that and it's almost like a grassroots movement to mm. <laughs> allow first home buyers to get in. Hey. <laughs> Let's see more of that. <laughs> uh, we've got some more, more um, news bits and pieces. Um, I've just seen in The Guardian that a milestone has been reached with uh, women achieving parity on Victorian government boards. So congratulations, women. Wow. Um, so uh, this is um, a part of a, a, a fairly long-term campaign now to uh, get equal representation of women on corporate boards um, and at that sort of corporate level. Um, although I know that there's a lot of uh, discussion around uh, around this and, and people sort of saying, you know, it's, it's great that we've got that, but it's really there's an there's also still an attitude problem um, and a cultural problem mm. at these levels that uh, certainly needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, but uh, Minister for Women Fiona Richardson said it's the first time it's happened in Victoria. Uh, it's a significant milestone for women. It also demonstrates that setting targets actually does work. Mm. Now we've known this for some time, and other countries around the world have seen the success of the implementation of targets. But here in Victoria, achieving this milestone in just two years is very significant indeed. So. Well done, women of Victoria, or corporate women of Victoria, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, that's excellent news. I mean, really, at the end of the day, a lot of organisations try to um, have 50-50 male and female employment targets, Uh, but then sometimes you drill down and you realise that most of the uh, positions uh, are geared towards men um, in more senior uh, capacities. So you might have 50-50 male-female employment numbers, but then you'll see that at a senior level, it's mostly men and the women are playing support roles. Um, so I think it's really good to see this great level of parity in at a board level, which is fantastic. Yeah. 
there's also a little bit more news if you want to hear. The uh, government has been tracking our peas and poos. Uh, they oh. have been dipping their hands right into them and just sifting through it to find out exactly what drugs we've been taking. Uh, and in Victoria, we have um, uh, this is the first time that the National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program, as it's more appropriately called, rather than sifting through your peas I like and poos. your title. Thank you. Yeah. I hope there's gender parity in those jobs as well. I hope so. Um, no one so is this, exempt. They have, um, they have found out that basically uh, Victoria's uh, drug policy makers are focusing on drugs that Australians are not taking. So we've had uh, a lot of focus on novel psychoactive substances. We've seen the Victorian government getting all up in arms and talking about, you know, how the need to ban this scourge, blah, blah, blah. Um, we have seen, obviously, that uh, there is still a lot of uh, methamphetamine use. Um, but one of the things that has been uh, vastly under uh, spoken about is the use of prescription opioids. Uh, these are things like... Um, I've gone and forgot the the name. The sort of things that people are given at hospitals or through mm. doctors for Endome. severe pain. Endome, Endome and um, tramadol. Tramadol. Yeah, mm. uh, these are the ones that um, people are taking a lot. And mm. uh, real time prescription monitoring is going to be coming in soon, wow. which will be so. Is this found out through just sifting through the peas and poos? <laughs> and where do the peas and poos come from? Uh, you and Toilet. my, you and me, friend. <laughs> and so, where, where's the um, highway of peas and poos uh, that they dip into? Well, actually, if you have you guys been down to ScienceWorks? I have. I've been uh-huh, there. And have yeah. you visited the pumping station down at ScienceWorks, right behind there? No. I've smelled oh, the pumping station. You, you will smell it. Um, <laughs> if you head down there, um, down at Spotswood, that was the um, that was the spot where all oh. all of Melbourne's uh, waste water, uh, well, not just like the not storm water, but waste water, yeah. uh, goes through and it goes off to Werribee, off to the treatment farms there. So I would assume somewhere along that route, um, they would be uh, dipping in and uh, finding out. It's a, it's a it's a, 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 a trend that's happening all across the world where they're checking peas and poos for drugs. So dig drugs. a hole and <laughs> bring keep the your, teepee. Yeah, keep it censored. Dig a hole and don't put it into the mains. All right, so we're just um, – that's a great note to wrap up on. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's almost half past, so we'll just quickly recap. So uh, at the beginning of the show at 7 o'clock, we had uh, a repeat from – Communication Mixdown, one of our programs that normally runs on Thursdays. So this was a repeat from Thursday, the 23rd of March. And the first recording was March 18 to 26th of March, which was Cultural Diversity Week in the state of Victoria. John Langer spoke with Chrissy Warren, an educator volunteer, education volunteer coordinator at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre about English teaching and communication across cultures. And then the second piece was Jen Martin talking to Sophie Arcudis, uh, Associate Director of, the, Director of the Centre for the Study of Higher Education at Melbourne University about international students, diverse codes of communication and teaching in a university setting. Uh, we then had an interview with David Giles, who's an advocate for Food Not Bombs and a uh, lecturer at, in anthropology at Deakin University, one of the organisers behind the public forum Melbourne Sleeping Rough Ban. And then following that, we had an interview with Gene Kehoe, so he's the uh, representative for the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, talking about that race across Australia by bike. So you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR with Di, Patrick and Nick, and uh, we hope you have a fabulous morning. We're signing off. See, See you later. later. See you next week. <laughs>